We're going to look specifically at, at verses 5 through 15 this evening. <clears throat> now, a few weeks ago, we looked, uh, when we looked at Micah chapter 4, we thought about the way in which Micah and his fellow prophets viewed the last days, the last times. And we thought about it in terms, of course, of, of the, the real bridge and the road bridge uh, and the gap between them. The prophets, from their point of view, they, they look at the, the, the last days from what we could term the, the viewpoint of Broddy Ferry Harbour. When you stand at Broddy Ferry Harbour and you look up the river, you see the road bridge and the real bridge and it all looks, you don't see the gap between the two of them. It's all jumbled into one. So when the prophets look at the last days, that they see it all in this, all in terms of one big thing jumbled all together. But for us, when we look at the last days, we look from the perspective of Riverside Drive. And we see that between uh, the road bridge and the real bridge, there's this gap, this age of grace that we live in, between the first and the second comings of Jesus. And it's very important for us to keep this in mind when we think about Micah and what he's saying in this central part of his book about the last days, about this vision of the last times when he's looking in the future. In many ways, we come to these, uh, when we come to the first five verses of Micah chapter 5, you've come to the very central part, the very heart of, of Micah's book. It's Micah's prediction and prophecy about the coming of the man from Bethlehem, the Messiah. Chapter 3 saw Micah denounce outright the leadership of Jerusalem and announce the inevitable exile that was going to come because of uh, the people of God's rejection of God's covenant. Then we stepped into Micah chapter 4 and we were met with this great vision of Micah's uh, looking at the future, the last days, as the nations would come and would seek Yahweh, would seek God. They would be taught by him, they would turn to him, And God's people also, that remnant, would be restored, it would be strengthened, it would be made strong, it would be made a people again. And then as we moved on into chapter 4, we found that before this wonderful picture of restoration and hope, there was going to be this time of trial, this time of exile. A time when the people of God would go through great Trials, that the powers of darkness, the forces of evil would be uh, working against her. But God would intervene. God would rescue. God would equip his people. And we find in chapter 5 then that this would all take place through the man from Bethlehem. It wouldn't come from the current crop of leadership in Jerusalem in Micah's time. It wouldn't even come from the capital city of Judah. It would come from the most unlikely place the little village of Bethlehem, this new ruler, this Messiah. And the change that the Messiah would bring to God's people would be so great, it would completely change their fortunes. This new ruler would do things God's way. He would rule his people in the strength of the Lord. And as a result of his rule, uh, God's people would no longer be besieged and and a battered remnant Rather, God would make them into something much more wonderful. And it's to this theme of the, of the people of the Messiah that Micah now turns to in, as we reach cha- uh, verse 5 of chapter 5 and to the end of the chapter. 
What difference will the Messiah make to the people of God? What will it look like to live during the reign of the Messiah? And like all good sermons, I think there's three things in this. Firstly, we find that uh, the people of God will be a people of peace. They will be also a a peculiar people. And I'll explain what I mean by that in in a while. And finally, they will be a pure people. So a people of peace, a peculiar people, and a pure people. So let's take this up at Micah chapter 5, or just at the end of chapter, or verse 4, rather. Uh, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. When the Assyrian invades our land and marches through our fortresses, we will rise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with the drawn sword, and he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches through our borders. When the Messiah appears on the scene, the people of God will be transformed and they will live securely and experience peace. The exact opposite of everything that Micah and his faithful remnant at this time had experienced up to this point. For them, there was this great threat of exile. For them, there was war. There was bloodshed on the horizon as the great juggernaut of the Assyrian army was there about to march, if it hadn't already begun, to march into Judah. It probably at this point had already taken away the northern capital in Israel, Samaria. The Assyrians, of course, were one of the most brutal empires ever in history. So it wasn't exactly a pleasant thought for Micah to have to think about what was coming. So at first glance, the idea of peace and security for God's people would be a very welcome one. Yet what does Micah mean by peace here? For straight away, after his pronouncement of peace, we find war again in his mind. The enemy is in the midst of him. It is in his invasion of Judah. When the Assyrian invades our land, he says. What we have to understand here is that the peace and security that uh, that the Messiah will bring to God's people is the peace and security that comes when victory is won. It's the peace that exists after the enemy has been dealt with. It's the security that comes when you know that your enemy has been defeated and is powerless to rise against you again. That's the peace that Micah speaks of here. For God's people will experience peace as they participate in the victory that the Messiah brings. So as the Assyrians invade their lands, marches through their fortresses, because of the Messiah, God's people are going to have more than enough resources to deal with any threat. We will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. That is to say, there will be an absolute abundance of leadership that will be perfectly capable of dealing with anything that the enemy can throw at us. The current leadership in Jerusalem was weak. It was powerless to do anything to stop the enemies of God's people. But when the Messiah comes, things will be different. Then there will be more than enough leadership not only to defend against any threat that the enemy brings, but to dominate them. They will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with the drawn sword. 
Now, this is where it gets slightly more interesting. For why would Micah here mention the land of Nimrod? Nimrod, the land of Nimrod, only appears in Genesis chapter 10 and in 1 Chronicles. Nimrod was an area that covered both, at the, I mean, during Micah's time, would have covered both Assyria and Babylon, the whole of early Mesopotamia. Well, it seems to be that Micah is using Assyria and Nimrod here in a representative way, not in a strictly historical sense. Assyria here stands really for any threat that comes against the people of God, any hostile force that might be arrayed against God's people, no matter what it may be. For Micah and his time, it was the historical nation of Assyria. Later, of course, it would be Babylon. Then we had the Medes and Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, and so on and so on. Micah is saying that when the Messiah comes and rules over his people, he will bring peace because they will participate in his great victory. He will give over the forces that oppose God and therefore oppose also God's people. And because of the Messiah and because of his victory, the remnant of God's people will have more than enough resources to deal with the threat from those who are hostile to them. Notice the last part of verse 6. He will deliver us. The he here referring back to the Messiah. Because of the Messiah and his glorious reign, God's people will enjoy victory and the peace that comes from it. What does that mean for us today? Well, we are part of that, of the Messiah's victory. As his people, we enjoy the victory that the Messiah won on the cross. When he triumphed over evil powers, put them, to open, put them to open shame on the cross. We are part, and we also take part in that ongoing battle. As Christ's people, as his rule continues to be contested in this world. But he has already won the victory. There may be many Assyrias or Nimrods that might stand against God's uh, church, his people. Many great juggernauts on the horizon that we think that we'll never be able to defeat, that will come and swallow us all up. But we already have the victory in Christ. But of course, that doesn't mean we fight militarily, of course. Paul would tell the Ephesians in chapter 6 of his letter, our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It is a spiritual conflict. We don't fight it with swords and tanks and tomahawk cruise missiles. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The weapons that the church uses are prayer and the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the gospel. The church is still opposed 
today by those who deny Christ, who set themselves up against him and the victory that he has already gained. So we fight. We fight against all that stands against his rule. And we fight in the full assurance that he has delivered us and that he will continue to do so. Secondly, we see here that God's people will be a, a, a particular people, a peculiar people. And when I say that, I mean it in the old sense that the AV used that phrase. God's people will be a specific people of his own possession. They are a people in and of themselves as opposed to all other peoples. I say this because, of course, on the surface you look at the church, its people look exactly like every other type of people in, in society. We're all people. We're all created by God. But the church is special. They're God's particular, peculiar people in the midst of the nations. And it's that idea that Micah turns to in uh, verses 7 uh, through 9. Twice he mentions this fact, verses 7 and 8. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples. And then in verse 8, the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations. This remnant of God's people, whom God will restore and bring through this great trial, will be in the midst of many peoples. They will be spread among them like uh, wildflowers appear in the midst of a, a wilderness of weeds and bushes. These people who are remnant, they are God's people, and they will have a twofold effect on the people that they live amongst. You see the two things that Micah mentions. They will be like dew, and they will be like lions. That is, they will both have a positive effect and a more negative effect on the nations. Firstly, they will be like dew or showers that fell on the ground to water the crops. And in Judah and in Israel, because the climate was so very hot, uh, and there was no constant rainfall apart from in a, in a wet season, the dew would, became very, very important. Often it was very, very heavy. It would fall on the ground during nighttime, and it would provide just enough moisture uh, to keep the crops well enough watered so that they could grow and to allow them to flourish and not to wither in the heat of the day. So Micah says the people of God, as they spread out, as they're spread out amongst the nations, they will have a similar effect. They will bless the nations. And have a, re, a renewing, a revitalizing effect. As they live under the leadership of the Messiah and submission to him, they live in such a way as they bring blessing to the people around them. God's people are those who, although they don't belong in this world, pray for it. Pray for its people. They are those who seek the good of the society and the nation that they're in. They're willing to love the stranger, the widow, the fatherless. They do good to those who are around them. They love their neighbor as they themselves would like to be loved. And in so doing, they bring blessing on the nations. And all, of course, because of God's grace. All because of the reign of the Messiah. And maybe in this way, in a small part, the offspring of Abraham become a blessing to the nations. As the people of the Messiah, they, they live in exile among the nations, seeking to love God, serve God, 
and love their neighbor. Small example uh, might be a story I came across this week of uh, one of the ministries of, of London City Mission. They have a homeless shelter on Weber Street in, in London. Uh, and it provides meals and a caring, safe place for many of the homeless people who, who live out in London. Just a small, tiny example of the way God's people can be a blessing amongst the nations. But then there's also the other side of this. For God's people will also live among the nations and they will also be like a lion. A lion that devours the sheep, that mauls, mangles as it goes and nobody can rescue those who oppose us, those who stand against God, will inevitably be overcome. Many times in history, many nations, societies, peoples have thought they would be able to destroy the church, destroy God, get rid of the Bible, get rid of God altogether. Yet the church remains and ultimately often participates actually in Demolishing many of those who stand against God and his cause. Victory has already assured because the powers, the forces that stand against God and against his people are already defeated. The Messiah has already won. The Lamb has won. So verse 9, the church will overcome its enemies and all her foes will be destroyed. Now if you're a little queasy about that idea... And it might be worth contemplating that in the end, God has promised to wipe out all evil from his world. That means anything or anyone who is opposed to his gracious rule over his creation. The defeat of his enemies and their punishment is all part and parcel of his redemption and restoration of his whole creation. All achieved through his Messiah. Just have a read over the final chapters of the book of Revelation. See what happens to Babylon, who of course symbolically stands for all the the forces and things that have stood against God and against his people throughout the ages. Look what happens to Babylon there. But of course, until that final judgment, until God puts everything right in the end, God's people will be, to some in this world, the fragrance of life, And to others, they will be the stench of death. That is what it will be like. And finally, we see that God's people will also be a pure people. Verses 10 through 15. If someone offered you gold, I'm sure you'd be delighted. But if they handed you a huge lump of rock and said, there, that contains gold. I'm sure you'd be a little disappointed. Because after all, what it's far better to have a piece of pure gold than a lump of rock which just contains some gold. And you see, God wants his people to be pure, to be the real thing. But unfortunately, they're like that lump of rock. They have all too many impurities and other things mixed up in us. And therefore, God has to make us into a holy people. And it is necessary for him to send that lump of rock through the refinery in order to get rid of all that is of no value, all the dross, all the dross, all that is rubbish. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so Micah tells us in that day, which again points us back 
to what Mike has already said, chapter 4, verse 6, when God restores his people. In that last day, God will take his people, whom he has promised to restore, and he will purify them for himself. He will act to make his people holy and obedient to him. And this, of course, will be a painful process. Look at how Micah describes it in these verses. God will destroy. He will demolish. He will tear down. He will uproot. He will take away anything that could cause his people not to be fully devoted and obedient to him. Firstly, God will destroy anything that his people uh, would be tempted to trust in and find security in other than God himself. Horses and chariots were, of course, the advanced weapons of the 8th century BC. Like many nations, Judith uh, thought that the size of her armed forces brought it security. The more chariots, the more secure. The more cavalry, the better chance of victory. God will take away all these false securities. Even those defensive securities, such as cities and strongholds. Cities and strongholds were the people where, where, where people would run in time of invasion when uh, they would move into them. And they would find security against the invading force. But the only security that the people of God were going to have will be Yahweh himself, God himself. It will be him that they trust, not military or economic might. God will be their security. He will be the one in whom they trust. And these other false idols, false securities that people look to will be taken away. To find assurance, to find Comfort in these things will not be an option. God's people will be devoted totally to him. They will trust in him. So let me ask, are there things in your life that you put trust in at the expense of Christ? Do you find your security, your assurance at the cross Or in your current account? Do you find your security, your assurance, knowing that you're a child of God? Or knowing that you're employed and assured a wage? Do you find your security in all that God has done for you in Christ? Or all that you have achieved over your lifetime? Where is your security? Secondly, God will purge his people from false devotion. He will destroy the witchcraft and they will no longer cast spells. He will destroy their images, their sacred stones. He will uproot the Asherah poles. All these things, I think, together can be uh, taken as the, the basic pagan practices that, would have, uh, that had, did indeed plague the people of Israel since they entered the promised land. The law had told them that they were not allowed to follow the practices of the peoples that they were displacing. 
but very often they did. These types of devotion to idols and pagan deities, they got all mixed up with it. Right up to Micah's time, even to the point of exile, these things were happening in Judah and Israel. Indeed, he looked back to, uh, to chapter 3, verse 11. Micah already has hinted at it, that the current crop of religious leaders didn't seem to mind bending the rules as far as the law of Moses was concerned. Witchcraft tried to uh, control the future influence events that had yet to be through magic and, and dark art. Spells, or was probably meant here as more like divination, attempts to know what will happen in the future before it does. Idols, sacred stones were often uh, fertility deities. Things like uh, Baal and Asherah, uh, which of course involved fertility rites with uh, temple prostitutes in order to try and increase fertility of animals and, and greater yields in the harvest and so on. God was going to take it all away, to destroy it all. So that, verse 13, they would no longer bow down to the work of your hands. God's intention in this destruction is to restore his people back to full devotion to himself. He will not let them continue with a foot in both camps, claiming to be his people while being devoted to these other things. God will amputate the dead and rotting flesh so that the body is allowed to heal. He will cut it off in order to save its life. And so he will purify his people, taking away anything that draws their devotion away from him. John Calvin put it very well. On the surface, Micah employs a harsh sentence here in proclaiming that God will pull down walls and strongholds, destroy weapons, and take away their horses and chariots. But Micah is introducing, rather, an exhortation that ought to make us rejoice. And why? Because it signals that God intends to remove any impediment that might cause us to turn aside from coming to him thus disposing us to render ourselves obedient to him with all our heart, choosing to make God our sole good, joy, and glory. God wants a pure people, a holy people, a people of his very own. And ultimately, of course, he has achieved this. He has done it through the Messiah. His death and his resurrection has purchased us for God. It has given us a righteousness, not of our own, but that comes from him, that is perfect. But of course, the process, the, the sanctifying process in this life continues until it is perfect and complete. In that great vision when God again will have a pure people, what Micah has talked about will be fulfilled. So what idols, what false devotions is God uprooting in your life? What ones does he need to uproot? And are you willing to let them go? What sacred stones is the church in need of smashing? But the final thought of Micah now turns in verse 15 to those who feel to obey Yahweh. Feel to obey the Lord. 
The nations that do not turn to him or come under his reign. On them he will turn his vengeance and his anger. And of course God's vengeance is not like human vengeance. It's not fickle or spiteful. This is his settled opposition to everything that pollutes, that degrades the good creation that he has made. Anything or anyone who fails to obey him and live under him as Lord, as Savior, as Master. On them God will bring his judgment. Interesting briefly to look at how this compares with the the beginning of chapter 4. Well, we find again the nations mentioned. The nations there turn to God. They find God's favor. They find God's grace. They're the ones who are willing to come and be taught by him. To come under his leadership, his rule. Here, these are the nations who feel to do that and therefore are under his wrath. Ultimately, as uh, the Apostle John would later see in his great vision in Revelation, all those who fail to obey the Lord will be outside the new Jerusalem. They won't get in. They won't be allowed into the presence of the Lord. They won't be allowed into where the tree of life is. They won't be allowed into where that place where the tree of life is, where its leaves are for the healing of the nations, where God will take away all the pain and the suffering and the sorrow. They won't get there. They will be outside. Revelation 21 and 22. God has promised promised to his church, promised to us that he would restore us, that he will rule over us, that he will make us, his people, experience his peace and joy, the peace that he gives. And we will have this as we live amongst the nations as his own people. Who are and will finally and completely be a holy and a pure people who belong to him and who are devoted to him and him alone. So as we leave this great section of Micah's book, the central part of it where he has brought us uh, into a great vision of the future. He's brought us to the Messiah. He's brought us to everything that God will do in his salvation for his people. Let me ask you, are you part of that people of the Messiah? Do you live under the reign of Jesus? Have you come to him repenting and turning away from all that is false and all these other devotions in our lives? And have you laid it all at the cross? And there find the grace and mercy and salvation of Christ. That God has given us in him and has promised us long into the future. Are you part of his people? Do you live under Jesus? I hope you can say yes. I hope you can rejoice as you look at this. As you think of what God has already done and will do. But if you haven't, then please look to Jesus. Please look at the cross. Please look at where God has revealed himself. And find there a gracious offer of forgiveness, of love, of restoration. 
Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your promises. We thank you that they are yes and amen in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that they, have, they stretch from eternity past to eternity in the future. Lord, we thank you for the gracious things you've promised to us. Lord, we thank you because we can do nothing else. There's nothing in us that can possibly achieve the salvation that you've given us. Nothing in us that is worthy of it. And yet, Lord, in your great love and mercy, in your covenant faithfulness, you have purchased us, you have loved us from before the foundations of the world. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Lord, we thank you, we bless you. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to be that pure people, to turn away from all those things which so easily hold us back and to look to Jesus, to keep going in faith, to keep repenting and turning away from all that is false and sinful and resting on his gracious love and grace that we find at the cross. Keep, Lord, help us, Lord, keep us hoping for that great vision of the future, that great time when the kingdom will not be contested any longer, but every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to your glory. Lord, we ask that you will help us persevere to keep going and to keep looking to our Savior, our Lord, our Master, for the grace that he has given us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.